0: You always have to say um, hello to our listeners out there. That's what they do on podcasts. Hello, listeners. Welcome. Um, So, and you can actually follow along or just listen because you have all the printouts of Marilyn's devotions. This is um, session seven, The Blessings of Adversity. If someone said adversity, tragedy, great suffering can be one of God's greatest blessings, you might think they had lost a few brain cells or had a recent lobotomy By its definition, the word blessing means something conductive to happiness, or wheel, an old English word indicating great benefit, a godsend, or a gift of well-being. The Bible says our Heavenly Father blesses us with only good things. He can only bless us with good because he personifies the highest good, and that is love. But when a particularly difficult, even pernicious event occurs, we've all questioned and this is supposed to be a good thing? Yet, it is not entirely ironic that adversities can also bring great blessings. Everyone experiences adversities. Some face more catastrophic ones than others. The Apostle Paul knew more adversity in his life than well-being, and the Lord foretold, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, Acts 9.16. Though the exact translation or meaning behind this statement may even sound Onerous, God often chooses one of his saints to endure adversities purposed for the good that comes from them. Paul was struck down with temporary blindness, leaving him helpless and totally dependent upon God and others. Later, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians twelve, seven to nine. The thorn might be a symbolic might be symbolic of a spur which a rider kicks to encourage the horse to run faster. For Paul, the spur or thorn spurred him on, strengthening his resolve to spread Christianity and build Christ's church. Paul faithfully endured hardships of every kind, floggings, shipwrecks, hunger, imprisonment, death. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. Acts 20, 24. Paul mirrored the life of Christ as we are asked to do. We may not receive the perilous journey Paul endured, but whatever blessings our Heavenly Father or Abba showers upon us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8, 37. If you study the words of St. Paul's epistles, you will see the incredible love, wisdom, provocation, insight, and consummate truth adorned with an, with an almost Shakespearean beauty of his words. You will come to see the blessing in his suffering and adversities. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 Our Lord saved Saul's life when he met him on the road to Damascus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are not privy to your will or wisdom for our lives. Please forgive us when we doubt your blessings. We know they are for our good, no matter how detrimental or injurious they may seem. Let us always remember our sufferings are for Christ who suffered to save us, to let us walk with him into the gates of heaven. Thank you, dear Lord, for his incredible and eternal blessings. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Marilyn, for those great devotions. Okay, I had a question from Sandy Porcho, yes, from last week, um, because we talk about Peter as the rock, and Jesus said he will build his rock um, upon what we're saying is Peter. Sandy said, well, isn't the rock Jesus? And so I always teach it as Peter, but I, every question needs to be looked at. And so I was doing a little word study on that, because there, there is three sets of beliefs in that, and one is that Jesus is talking about himself, and then he is the rock. I would think that's not the correct interpretation, because um, then we see that Peter is instrumental in having those keys to the kingdom when every um, major group um, is... Um, Receives the gospel message, um, but what I think I think by saying Peter, that's a little too broad because Peter himself is one of the options, and the other option what what um, theologians say is that it's Peter's confession because when Jesus asking him if he believes, so and I mean I was my husband and I talked about this too, and he always says it's it's Peter's confession that it's built on, not just Peter himself which would kind of make sense about not giving the man that much authority. The reason it's a little bit dicey and I'm not saying that that because that's what I think is the right one. Because you can go back to the original Greek, but Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. So when you're now do not ask me deep questions on this. All I know is when you're speaking Aramaic but you're translating this into Greek for writing, some of the words could mean two different things. So that's why it's a little a uh, dicey where people don't have one opinion. But the thing is, it, theologians study the Bible forever and you cannot find a consensus on almost nothing in the Bible. So that's why it's so fun to study it and get the different ideas and see what you come up with. So I like the idea of Peter's confession. Also, when you look at Peter's name, meaning Petra, meaning the rock, if, if you do a word study on that, um, that actually means, like, some would say a pebble or a smaller rock. So isn't that interesting that Jesus is the rock, but Peter is like a smaller rock? Yes, I was talking so. to Pastor yesterday, he said exactly that. Did he? Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, good Because no, yeah, I, so I think he's so smart, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it wasn't about him because but it was Jesus, yeah. but the, his message. So he, yes, yeah. because he I've always that. knew and it wasn't just about yeah. Peter, but yet he had that role in it. So I mm-hmm. never thought it was maybe just about... Jesus being the rock, so Peter's confession makes like the most sense so to me did, in that. what did you say about the rock itself? Is it a pebble? Yeah, like the name Peter, meaning rock, but actually translated, it's a smaller rock or a pebble. And again, different people are interpreting that that were a little different because of the Aramaic and, and the Greek thing going on. But um, so, but I, I like that how that makes sense oh, to me. So could I just? Oh, please, my, yes. This came up this morning before I left. My husband said it's going to come up. Yeah. <laughs> He said but, no. what, oh, I would love him to teach. Petro means Peter. Petra means rock, yes. and petrus means pebble. Yeah. So it's like all these. It's a word study thing. It always goes down to these word study things. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Translation. By the way, it wouldn't be so bad to see if Pastor Fair could ever teach this class for a little bit. We don't want to put more on him, but I'm just saying he's good. Yeah, he yes. gave me a whole litany of all his obligations. I know. It's all, yeah. It's I'm not saying like I love doing this, but it takes some time. So, um, but yeah, so that great, great question, Sandy. And I didn't, you know, don't want to spend too much more time on that because it was a little sub question, but always every question's good mm-hmm. because it, it just takes you into, into more study. Um, because even when you think you know something, it could be like, I like saying it's Peter. I always knew it wasn't the man, but just to define it is that confession was what I, I liked that. Um, so we left off where, um, okay. Peter had, um, he explained his actions about Cornelius because he had, remember he had the vision of all the unclean animals. And what God is saying is that the gospel is open to everyone, including Gentiles. So he explains his actions. And now we um, talk about the church of Antioch. I read a little bit about that last time, but I'm going to, I always like to backtrack a little um, to review. So we are on chapter 11, verse 19, 11, 19 is where we're going to start. Um, so the, um, Yeah, 11 verse 19. So, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas, a a real upstanding um, leader, um, part of the the movement, Um, this was a, a, a... a group of believers. They had knowledge of the scriptures. They were godly, but a lot of pagan practices were going on in Antioch also. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were, were called Christians first at Antioch. So it's a distinct party of people. We see he, he's, he went to get Saul. He didn't go to get Paul. We're still calling him Saul. Um, at this point, and we're going to see how that changes because um, when he really gets the calling into his Gentile ministry. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So we still see prophets in the Bible, like we did in the Old Testament. We have three sets of leaders right now, really, in the church. We have the apostles, whose authority was extended to the whole church just to spread the news. God, Jesus gave them that authority. You're going to hear about elders. Those are specific to a specific church. They're, they have authority confined to where they were set apart in that church and then prophets which are foretelling the future the will of god specifically so we still see them um we don't see i think you could get a lot of theologians in a room and they could discuss this for days are there prophets now you know i believe as we're as we're warned in um in Revelations from John, don't add anything to scriptures. I think the scripture reveals everything to us that we need to know. Mm -hmm. So I would probably be in the camp of we don't need prophets anymore, but that is for another day, another time. But um, we still see prophets here. So verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So we see here really that the church, though being spread, is still a cohesive unit and they're helping each other out. Um, uh, Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Okay, so i got a lot to unpack in that one verse. Um, let's start with who is King Herod. So, because we know there's, there's more than one Herod, that's a title. He was in control of Jerusalem at that time. Yes, and it's not the same King Herod that was there at the time of um, Jesus' Jesus' birth. That was a different King Herod. Is it nephew or something? Yeah, well, yeah. So um, you had um, King Herod that was there. I have a really good note on this. The Herod that was there at the time of Jesus' birth would have been. um, I'm sorry, just give me one second because I have really good. Okay. Now that's that's um, this is Herod Agrippa that's that we're talking about now. The Herod of the time of Jesus' um, birth was his grandfather. That Herod actually had his own son put to death, and then Herod Agrippa is is his son. Um, so Herod the Great had Herod Agrippa's dad killed. So when Agrippa was a young man, he was sent to Rome for an education. There he became friends with the grand-nephew of Emperor Tiberius, because we also had emperors. Um, the Herod was the ruler of Judea and the Jews, but we had um, the Roman the, the Roman empires, emperors. So he was friends with the grand-nephew of Tiberius, who was named Gaius, and later became known as Caligula. So this um, Herod that has James put to death had a great friend that was Caligula. So you see all these, we have this new um, threat now, this new enemy. Um, when, when the message of the gospel went out there, you know, you had the Jews turning against it. And now you have these, the, the Gentiles, yes, becoming um, believers, but also turning against it. With, with the, the government was turning against it. The, the, the Roman soldiers were against the message. And you're going to see, if, if you're a student of history, we're going to get to these great persecutions, um, the burning of Rome, the destruction of the temple in 60 AD, um, 70 AD. So if you look at your timeline of Paul this is, and, and Peter, this is all happening not that many years before the temple is destroyed. So there's, there's quite an uprising. And so you got guys like Harold Agrippa, like, like Caligula. So um, Agrippa first becomes leader of just like the Golan Heights, and later he's king of all the Jews, um, all of Judea. Um, after Caligula, Claudius became emperor and gave Agrippa even more land. That's when he, like, Judah and Sam, Samaria. Uh, basically, all of modern-day Israel was under his control. And he um, was, the Herods were a descendants of Esau and not Jacob, so this is this chip on, on Harold Agrippa's shoulder that he's not really considered the, a rightful Jew to be in line to be the king, but his grandma was a Jew. So he's, he's got this, this this chip on his shoulder. He wants the people to be accept him. They liked him. They liked ruling. And so there was a lot of like... You can't tell with rulers. There's a lot of people. Oh, you're so wonderful. We accept you. But you know how much of that is just trying to save your own life, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's a great study to go through, like the history of this. And there's a lot more that that we're skimming over. But I I think that would kind of be a great study one day to just do, like the temple from the time of the tabernacle in the wilderness to Solomon's temple, to you know the next temple to the Herod's um, remodeling we'll of the temple we'll do that. and this. We'll do that. I <laughs> the okay, it it's more historical but I think having the historical context of all this is so well, interesting Herod built the, uh, the, the temple Herod the well Solomon built the temple then it was destroyed it was rebuilt by I can't remember who it was and it was just eh and then Herod came with this great remodel. The oh, Herod okay, the Great during the time of, of Jesus. Herod the Great during first, Jesus' time. First, first time. And it was like, it, the, the temple is so much bigger than Solomon's temple now. And, mm-hmm. and um, so this is the temple. It's on the same site. It's always on that same holy site. And this is the temple that, that's going to be um, permanently destroyed. And that's why everybody's arguing over that, that piece of land. So, um, Andrea, I just have a question. Yes. I know that like with David, you know, he was brought in by God. Mm-hmm. God clearly anointed him for that. Yeah, through the man after God's own heart, yes. Yeah, but how did these other kings, I mean, some of them you read in the Word, they're even self-appointed, but then they end up getting killed. How, how was it normative back then for them to become a king? I don't know. Yeah, that's another, yeah. Oh, I'd have another? To, that's another whole okay. thing, and I'd have to get off, you yeah. know, get... The, the, it's the, they didn't want, they had... It, it was a human idea that they needed to have a king. Right. You know, so the, 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 the children of Israel wanted a king. They were okay. They had um, judges ruling them before that. And so then you're going to get power-hungry people in there. You're going to get people that weren't after God's own heart. And then nations go straight. And then God sends in some enemy to grab them and get them back on their feet again and, you know, make them realize. And they go to exile. You know, people conquered them. So it's that whole up and down of the faithful kings and the unfaithful kings. I think just like now, you would pray that your church leaders, I mean, that your world leaders would always be, you know, subjects of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but that doesn't happen. Even, even in a nation like, like the United States where we are a Christian nation, but we have leaders on every level that don't always follow that. So right. it's like that. So, and the yeah. most of the kings were in the family thing of David. Yeah, you know, I mean, really, when you study the minor prophets, you know, they're all, you know, when they split up, and you had Israel and you had Judah, you know, that was the big breakup of all the kings, you know, and then they had their king up there who's really terrible, and Judah down here, and they were all really related to David, and then you get the whole thing with the Sumerians and all that. So that's a whole another study. Great question, but yeah, it's uh, it uh, like any like any government thing, so. Yeah. Okay, so then we also see here that James is put to death. James, the brother of John, he's one of the, two, of the 12 disciples. And we see here on this little outline thing, two men named James, because we have two men named James going on here. You're going to say, wait a minute, I thought he was dead. So we have James, the disciple. There's two James, the disciples I know that because I know the song. There were 12 disciples, Simon Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Altheus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. I am one in you. I am one in you. We are all disciples. I am one in you. So that's how I know there's two disciples' names, James. So this was um, James, the brother of John. Uh, yeah, it works. Um, there, this is James, the brother of John. He's son of Zebedee. He's the first... Um, disciple that we see martyred. We, obviously Stephen was martyred, but this is the first one of the 12 that we see martyred. Death by a sword would mean it was an official way, um, a legal official way to kill him. And um, we're also going to see soon more about James, the brother of Jesus. He's the one who wrote the book of James. Um, and he becomes kind of the de facto leader of Jerusalem uh, there's no official like voting on who's the leader of the Jerusalem Church. So they didn't get together and have a council and say it's Peter, and then as James Peter goes out, and then we see James really taking authority to authority role in that Church of Jerusalem. And we know we've talked about this before, but um, because James is the only one we see actually martyred of, in 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 the Bible, but there's other history that that supports the Bible things and traditions, and we would assume that all the other apostles, um, all the, the other 12, you know, obviously Judas was um, replaced, were also martyred, uh, except for possibly John. Tradition always says that he was not martyred. Um, some people say he died on the island of Patmos when he was in exile, but that doesn't seem right either. It seems like um, he actually left there. Um, but there, are, there is some evidence that maybe he was also martyred. But what James is, is the first one here. But. And um, James, the brother of Jesus, we see from scripture also that uh, Jesus' own brothers did not believe um, when he was alive that he was the son of God. So this comes after, and um, James is like one of my favorite writers in, in, the, uh, in the Bible. I love the book of James. If you ever want to read that one, that's always a good one too. So, and then if you go to Mark ten thirty six, you can just listen to me read it. A little more background on James. Uh, I'm going to actually start in 35. So Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in, in your glory. You don't know what you are asking," Jesus said. "Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I baptized with?" We can," they answered. Jesus said to them, "You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared." So he's talking about, and they don't—I don't, don't think—they realize this. Can you can you handle what I handled and and being crucified and dying for this faith and they're like yes I can. Um and um so James here is um he's he is is martyred that way. So um and then it also goes on I think that's later on in the verse about, you know, Jesus um you know, uh saying that uh it is not for to to know if if that's going to happen to John also. That's for me to decide. Um So that's why we think James might, I mean, John, I'm sorry, may not have been martyred. Um, And also Jesus is saying there, it's for my heavenly father to decide who will sit at my right hand and left hand. But it's kind of just a little side note to see the prediction of that happening. So now we go to Peter and in prison and his miraculous escape. Verse three of chapter 12, when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So he couldn't kill him right away because, luckily, you know, it was, it was a feast that would have been um, against um, the rules to be able to do that. And he was going to bring him out after the Passover, probably like they did with Jesus and Barabbas, and who do you want to have killed kind of thing. And he has a lot of guards on him. Obviously, because they saw what happened with Jesus, could be one reason. And also because he wanted to make this great point. There's no way this man's getting away. You know, he's like, hey, they liked it when I killed James. How much more are they going to like it when I kill Peter, even? So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. So, you know, this light shone, the glory of God came in, and um, he's free again. This is the third time he's been um, in prison. Yeah, he was... uh, After the healing of the lame man in Acts 4 and um, in Acts 5, again, for preaching, he was put in in prison. So here we have it again. just kind of used to this by now. Um, Then the angels said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angels told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left. Then Peter came to himself. He said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating." When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So this is John Mark. We're going to talk about him in a few minutes. Um, And you see now they kind of um, are into the the model of worshiping in people's houses. So at first they kind of all came together as one unit. Now they're spreading out. There's more of them. So they're doing uh, house worship. Uh, Let's see. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. I love that. Did you see your kids doing that, though? Like, oh, she slammed the door on Peter, and she just goes in and tells everybody, and said, you know, and just say, come in. You're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be an angel. Now, why, like, you would think, why they're, explanation is angel when it seems like that would be more miraculous than peter but it wasn't to them because the jewish people would believe everyone has like a guardian angel that looks like them and it was not out of the realm in their beliefs to to believe that the angel would be at the door so that actually was more believable to them than peter by the third time would get out of prison miraculously but peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door they saw him they were astonished Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Uh, th- there's an interesting little commentary on this. that, uh, like, it, And the thing with Luke, he doesn't need to give you more information than you need. That's not his purpose of writing. But it just like abruptly, he left. And he said... It, they, he probably couldn't give a lot of information always to where Peter is. We're going to see him again one more time in Acts. But this was written in real time. Like, he, he didn't want to implicate people either that were helping Peter, could have been part of it. And I thought that was just a side note that was kind of interesting to me. Um, because some of the books were written way after the events happened. Um, and this was, this was probably out there, um, you know, soon after. And because Luke was writing um, this um, you know when he was getting this information from Peter, I mean from Paul. So you know, interesting. Uh, verse eighteen. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered they were executed. Um, that I always, I, I don't question the Gospels. I mean the the Bible, um, but um, I find that kind of sad because it was you know. But God. God knows what he's doing, and God, um, you know, there's a lot of that stuff in the Bible. So I always say that, like, when you're recruiting people, there's some verses you don't recruit with. That might not be one of them. Yeah. Stay away from a lot of the Old Testament battles when you're recruiting people, too. Okay, so Herod's death. Um, this, I, this is a terrible story, but I agreed with this one. When Herod, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people, of Tyre and Sidon, and now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So someone that either they bribed him or somehow had a connection that he was the inside guy, they needed the food. There's a famine going on. And, um, you know, rulers can really use food as, as manipulation, as equity to get done what they want. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Yeah. So he had some kind of intestinal issue and, um, you know, didn't give praise to God, the right God. So boom, and that's the end of that Herod, um, don't worry, it's the evil son coming right up behind them. But the word of God in- continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a of background on, on John Mark. And he is the Mark from the writer of the Gospels. And to be honest, my Bible had the best summary of it, so I'm just going right from um, my Concordia Study Bible in the front. Um, Mark uh, is associated with Peter in the early non-biblical tradition and is also called John Mark in the New Testament. The first mention of him was in connection with his mother who had a house in Jerusalem. So when we just read about him, that was the first mention that we, that we had of him, um, when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch from Jerusalem after the famine visit, Mark accompanied them. Mark next appears next as a helper to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he deserted them in Perga and Pamphylia to return to Jerusalem. Paul must have been deeply disappointed with Mark's actions on this occasion because when Barnabas proposed taking Mark on the second journey, Paul flatly refused, a refusal that broke up the working relationship. I think those things kind of happen for good and you can look at the timeline, you can see that Paul has different people with him and that him and Barnabas aren't always together. Uh, That just made the gospel reach more people because Barnabas went one way and Paul went another way and and took with them different helpers. Um, So no further mention is made of him, um, either either of them in the book of Acts after that separation. Um, We know that... um, Mark writes this gospel. Um, The evidence points that he's writing the gospel of Mark to the church at Rome, or at least to Gentile readers, because he explains Jewish customs, translates Aramaic Aramaic words, and seems to have a special interest in persecution and martyrdom. And um, it's described like Mark is to... Um, John Mark is to Peter like what well, Luke is to Paul where he's recording things from Peter um, so also he has that that connection with Peter um, and the occasion of him writing his his um, gospel is um, the persecution of, of Roman the Roman church so a, a lot of the books of the Bible like are connected with that persecution and what's happening persecution by um, you know, the government, persecution by other believers, um, getting into the, when you read those um, epistles and the rest of the New Testament, I think it's always good to, to look either in your Bible, if you don't have it in your Bible, go to the internet and see what the background of them writing is. You'll be able to understand those Bibles, those verses a lot better if you see why the author is writing, is writing those things. Um, but Barn, uh, John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas too. It's in my notes somewhere. So that's why um, that's where that connection first started with.. Barnabas um, is his Did you have an probably mm-hmm. um, but um, I couldn't tell you what that is okay. right now. I know it, it I, it's somewhere but I yeah, but you can look that up on the internet as we're talking <laughs> to because were, people had the you know they had their their Jewish names and they had their yeah. Greek names. so yeah. so um, we see Peter is gone now for a while. He'll come back again. And we're going to really concentrate on this new ministry that God is leading Paul to. And this is really the ministry that encompasses so much of the rest of the Bible and Paul's epistles. Now, um, Paul, you know, he believes, we know he had this, the, the, the blindness, the vision on the road. He has, um, He has the encounter with Jesus. We have this calling from him, but we're going to get even to more specifically what that calling means as to his mission. And it reminded me, like, when um, you ask a pastor, like, when did they receive this calling? When did they know they were going to be a pastor? And I love hearing that story from everyone in ministry, um, teaching, preaching, whatever it is, anybody doing anything in the church. And I know my husband would tell the story when he was was in grade school. They said, he had to give a speech, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And his brothers were pastors. Oh, so he's studying to be pastors. They're quite a bit older than he is. And so he just said a pastor. But you but you knew that it like it was really a thing. Because ever since I knew him from college, it was like that was just that that was his calling. That was gonna be what he did. But then there was this moment after seminary, at the end of seminary, it's it's referred to as the call, and you're called to a specific church, to a specific ministry there. And I think that's what we're getting into where we see what Paul is specifically going to go up to the Gentiles. So for us, it was before internet or anything, you didn't have map, you didn't know where anything was. So so all these women, all the wives are sitting there in the pews, you know, and I don't know what it was like for you if it was kind of the same thing. We're all in the pews at seminary, and we're in the, we're in the chapel, and all the graduates are up there in the front. And they had had a, like a, a meeting with um, the seminary leaders to kind of get an idea of where you're, you maybe wanted to go. But nothing was guaranteed. You didn't know where you are going to go at all. We had no idea. So we're sitting there with maps. And Randy walks up. And they said, um, uh, Mattoon, Illinois. We're like, Ugh. Illinois, Chicago. And then. Illinois, Chicago, and a farm. That's all there is in Illinois. And, um, so we were in the farm part. And it was great, but we didn't know. One of our friends received a call, and, and it was to, um, I think it was, in, it was in one of the Dakotas, I believe, North Dakota. And in their call papers, you get this document, what your church is like. It says, it needs to be able to live a life of, of isolation. So um, and you didn't know. he. Didn't, I know him. He did not ask for a life of, of isolation. So you just didn't know where God was going to send you on those things. And um. And I think you whether it was a call that you enjoyed, I, don't, I think that was immaterial. I think you, you go where the Holy Spirit wants you to go, where God sends you, and you learn from that. Um, and so we're going to, that's why I'm kind of drawn to this story of, of Paul and, and how this happened. So chapter 13, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Manin, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. So that's um, like a foster brother, because a lot of times in, in, in royalty, if you had a, a child, you would foster, kind of, or maybe even adopt another child of the same age to be brought up with your child, so they had a playmate. Yeah, yeah and Saul. Now, Saul's listed last. These were probably the way the Bible was written, listed in order of importance. And Saul was really not important yet. Barnabas was really the leader of this church of Antioch. Remember, he wouldn't got Saul. Saul is not important yet. Verse um, two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I love this. His first missionary journey, and my Bible says this too, and it's a conclusion I came with too. It doesn't say they had a big planning session, they had a voters meeting, they had a committee. No, they prayed to the Lord and let the Lord guide them. Um, You need planning committees in churches, don't get me wrong, and you, you need voters meetings, you need all that. I'm not saying you don't need that. But that's not the first place you go. The first place you go is to Lord in prayer. Because I've seen sometimes where the committees, Maybe not necessarily we're listening to what the Lord's not not my church. I like this church, but um, um, I'm not gonna never say anything about this church. <laughs> Other people's church, no, <laughs> just kidding. But it happens, and I think we've all seen that where you forget when you're planning something that it's the Lord you go to first in prayer, and He will guide you. But you need to listen to it, and that's I think the hardest stumbling block is listening to it because sometimes it's not logical and it doesn't make sense. And especially it's not safe. You're like, well, we really can't do that. That doesn't seem safe. It doesn't seem affordable. It doesn't seem necessary. So always where, where we need to start. Um, and it's hard in the process of sending out pastors because I know there has to be, there has to be paperwork. There has to be that kind of stuff with it. There has to be um, a fit. And it was when we came to this church, we had like an interview, which was really at that time, not really done so much. They would kind of sometimes not even meet you. I don't think that's wrong if it's done the right way. I think for the church to get to know you and you need to get to know the church and then you pray, is this where the Lord's leading me? Because, um, you know, there's, there's so many different factors, but the Lord's definitely leading Paul here. And then he goes on, um, to, um, his first missionary journey. And now this is the part where, in a way, I'm kind of done. One big thing I want to cover yet, but I'm kind of done because the rest of it's going to be Paul, and you can look at that. But I, I did pick out some things um, from each missionary journey that I thought were interesting and important. So if you go to chapter 14, verse eight, fourteen eight, and Paul's on the journey, and we're going to talk about... Um, his time in Lystra and Derby. Um, he had just healed, he had just healed a man. And what the church was doing here is kind of putting a pagan spin on it. So we're going to see, um, uh, how now that Paul is, is, um, ministering to the Gentiles, all these pagan worships, worshiping comes into it. Um, the church is kind of, um, you know, in distress too, because here we had the, the word of the gospel first went out to the Jews. So the Jews obviously had a knowledge of Scripture. They were already believers in 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 our heavenly Father, and now they're um, being preached to on Pentecost. Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus crucified, risen for our our sins. He's the Savior. Okay, then we have proselytes. We have people like. Um, uh, the Ethiopian, we have people like Cornelius, who was a believer. He just didn't have all the details. And now we're getting the message of Jesus Christ given to people who didn't have any knowledge of anything. And so which causes um, issues within the church itself, which we're going to get into in chapter 15. But so, so here we have pagan interpretations of that um, miracle. And Paul, Paul was not expecting this. And now you're also going to see after that commission where he goes out, instead of that missionary journey, now he's called Paul. His mission is really starting now, that he's specifically going to be that the leader of that Gentile church. So in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his, in, in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul and he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith and faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And that, at that, the man jumped and began to walk. Then the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysonian language, the gods, small g, have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So um, we kind of get an idea of what these two might have looked like because Zeus or Jupiter, or Jupiter, you know, there's the Greek and the Roman word for it. Um, Barnabas could have been large bearded, you know, mm-hmm. like they thought, because they would have thought these might have been the Greek gods. Mm-hmm. So... So that could have been a description, too, of what he looked like. Then Paul, because he was called Hermes, or that's Mercury, um, was probably small, quick movements, spokesman for the group. So, you know, again, could have been how they were acting, but probably uh, also a little bit how they looked. So the the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted other sacrifices to them. So this is really backfiring. Here they're coming in the name of Jesus and now the people are worshiping them like gods. But when, uh, verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and see and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he had not let him, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead." But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. So this is just the kind of persecutions you're going to see happen to Paul throughout this. But um, yeah, so so he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he's jailed. And we're going to pick him up in a minute as um, he's a prisoner in Rome toward the end of the book. But an important chapter in this book, I think, is chapter 15, The Council of Jerusalem. This is the last time we're going to hear about Peter in the New Testament outside of the books he's written. He's written two books, first and second Peter. So what's happening here is this whole issue with now you're getting Gentiles in the church and it had been a Jewish church and we know through Paul's through Peter's vision that the church is open to the Gentiles, but these 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 Jewish believers are still having a hard time understanding that they don't have to follow the Jewish laws to be saved, even with the addition of Jesus Christ. And so you have this um, circumcision party, it's called, which my husband said, You're gonna tell my joke, right? I said, I have to tell your joke, and he said, I to tell you. Doesn't sound like a party to me. That's what he always says if he if he uses that in a sermon about the circumcision party. It doesn't sound like a party to me. But these are people who um who believe that you have to follow the Jewish customs and the rules, even with the addition of Jesus Christ, to be saved. And obviously, we know this is true. These are Juda- Judaizers. Um, and they, they believe that you can still be a converted Gentile. But again, you have to follow the rules. And um, this did take me down a hole that I'm going to go to. Let's go to that first. And it's in Galatians. Oh, never mind. I'm going to go to it last. It won't make sense first. But let's go to chapter 15. I'm sorry. Like, having that snow day and trying to put these two together, you can see how my mind's working sometimes. It's in there, and I have to find where it isn't there. And then I have to find where it is on the paper. So I am prepared. I've just got these things going on in different places. So I apologize for sometimes the flow isn't as good as I like it. So, Council of Jerusalem. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp, sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and they, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad when they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So even though they're on a mission to get to Jerusalem to have this meeting, they're um, they're sharing the gospel everywhere they went. And you can see how they're welcomed by the church and Paul always had that issue about really not being welcomed at first because he was Saul who was killing people. So um, he, you know, make sure we see that there that he's welcomed because he's going to talk about that again. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. So I like, too, how the apostles and the elders met for this discussion. It wasn't a discussion with all the people in all the group. You had your church leaders who were going to talk about this and come to a consensus and then address the crowd. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you. The Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us he made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we were saved, just as they are. Last time he speaks in the book of Acts, um, this yoke is the law. This is the whole point. They're missing, again, the whole point of Jesus coming was to free them from that yoke of the law because they could not acquire salvation through that. But And you can see, though, I mean, this is not just a new thing. This is generations and generations and generations and generations of following the law of Moses and everything was about following the law. And so now they're abruptly switching. And you also have the church leaders who manipulate the believers by following this law. You also have a whole hierarchy here that's getting disrupted by this new idea that you don't have to follow the law of Moses. It doesn't mean that you can can go and break all the commandments and murder You know, as we talked about before, the law is on the hearts, even of the Gentiles that have never heard the law. That's not what it was talking about in the Bible. In in many other places, we'll talk about Christian living. Again, read the book of James. This is not a free for all. This just means that this is not how you acquire salvation. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Now you really see James in his leadership role. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, this again, James being the leader, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath." So he's not saying get rid of the law of Moses. He's saying we still hear it. It's preached every every Sabbath. It's still everybody knows it. He's not saying get rid of the law. But what he's saying is we're going to take, we're going to kind of boil it down to these three big points and and tell the Gentiles this is what they need to do. And you see um, a lot of it's about food. We have food um, given to idols, food that is um, strangled and, and refraining from blood, and then sexual immorality. It's because these were so grievous to the Jews that it would cause such a division in the church if they didn't at least tell the Gentiles, "You need to follow this." That church could be not be united as one as one group if these were not being followed. Um, so you can see the logic in this, but it's not saying that if if you had a piece of meat and you didn't know it was being sacrifice to an idol and you ate it you're not going to go to hell that's not what this is saying this is about the unity of the church um so you know we need to kind of put that into context like because if first you read it and i was thinking like well why didn't he say that thou shalt not murder thou shalt not you know all these things or it, it, again it's not it's not discounting that it's saying this is what we need to do in order to go forward as a church verse 22 then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. To the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, uh, and Cecilia. And then um, he goes on to, uh, I, you want to read it because there's a little point I want to make. Uh, we, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we are all all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. This just adds validity um, to it that they're sending more people, respected people. Because a letter, you know, you have a letter. It's like sending a text message. You don't know the tone of it. So yeah, they're going to come back with the tone of it and, and bring the letter back. Therefore, we are sent to Jesus Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You right, are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Well, I didn't go on and really explain it. It It's like, this is what we need you to do. Farewell. (laughs) The men who were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. Okay, now, if you're following along in the Bible, I'm on verse 33. I mean, yes, verse 33 of chapter 15. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Then it goes to verse 35, another one of those. There's no verse 34. Mm -hmm. 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. It's one of those things on verse 34 um, where the author decided to put something in because it didn't make sense to him. Um, because he assumed that Silas didn't wasn't sent off because he had to go on a missionary journey with Paul, but he could have he could have come back. So it it just it's such a little thing that I imagine the writers like wait a minute if he went off but he's got to come back and be with Paul <laughs> yeah. and so we're gonna write this. So I just thought because again till I taught this class I never realized that those things happened in the Bible or they would just kind of leave out verses there. So that was that's another one of those. Okay, so we see this um, Council of Jerusalem. And then I'm going um, to guide you to something else in um, the letter of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11. Because I feel if you're reading Galatians and you think about this, it doesn't make sense. Because it doesn't make sense to anybody that studied the Bible either. And that's why, again, there's a lot of different interpretations of it. Um, the, in my Bible, it's titled, Paul Opposes Peter. So it's talking about this disagreement between the, the Jews and, and the church leaders about what the Gentiles should follow as far as rules. So Galatians 2, verse 11, I'm going to start at. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? we who are Jews at birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for Christ. And I'll stop it there. But he's writing Galatians because of this actual issue about are they supposed to follow the Jewish customs or not? Now, why is he saying that him and Peter oppose each other when we just heard that they all agreed and Peter you know, talked about it, James talked about it, they all in agreement so what I've come to conclusion, but by what other people are saying, you know, people that have studied this longer than I did, the dating on Galatians, really, the theory that it's before this Council of Jerusalem makes the most sense. This happened first, because after the Council of Jerusalem, obviously, they're all in agreement of this. And you can see that Peter just, in this instant, you know, you go and you're, it's kind of peer pressure, like, well... Yeah, I know that you don't defile the customs, but I'm gonna kind of do it because all these people are looking at me. So, I really think it makes the most sense that this did not happen after. I don't think Peter um, was at this council of Jerusalem and then later again saw Paul and was discounting that. I, I so so when you read that and it doesn't make sense, I to me that theory is the one that that makes the most sense. Um, and then just. Um, concluding notes on peter because like i said we kind of leave we leave him now um we do see though that he wrote two epistles in the bible and um first peter's the theme of suffering of believers he encourages faithfulness in christ Christ christ-like behavior in difficult circumstances and then second peter he warns believers against false teachers and encourages them to grow in faith and instruction um on jesus return so these are written after this so he's still active out there um preaching the gospel, but it really becomes a Gentile message more. And that's why we hear more about Paul. Um, Early church historians agree that he was martyred during the persecutions by Nero. So that was sometime between 54, 68, probably closer to the end of that. There also is the tradition that he was um, uh, put on the cross upside down because he felt not worthy to, to be crucified like Christ did. Not sure if that's true, but it's. I think it's a lovely tradition. And whether it's not true or not, I think it really fits in with Peter's personality to me because he was so all or nothing sometimes. You know, yes, I'll do this, Jesus, no problem kind of thing. And um, so that, you know. Um, also, it is said that he's buried in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. That's where his official barriers, burial site is. That's a long time ago to know if it's really him. But um, they did some... Um, Uh, DNA, I don't know if DNA or some kind of scientific look at that um, burial site in the 60s and they figured out it was someone buried in that time period about the age of Peter. So it actually really could be Peter in, in that. So not that we need those things for our faith, but archaeology is such a friend of the Bible as we discover more. And then I love the news flashes. Oh, we found this. I'm like, yeah, that was in, like, the book of, of Hosea. We knew that already. Um, so it, and we don't need it, but it is, it is a nice um, uh, foundation for some people like that young people nowadays, especially I think even more than our generation really likes to have that evidence. They don't they're not as good as just accepting accepting things without hearing all those things with them. And it is always a good witness tool also, like for people to know that, yeah, well, it's a jumping off point. Yeah, they found that. I I remember that from the Bible thing. You know, even like People talk about we discovered the Earth is is round and not flat. I'm like the Bible says that it talks about the Earth being hung like a you know a sphere in the sky. So we we knew those things first. So that um, that is kind of where we leave off Peter. And now just a few little concluding things on Paul. Um, highlights from his second missionary journey. I chose verse chapter seventeen, verse sixteen to thirty four. And this is um, an altar to the unknown God. Because I, I like this story because I think, again, for our purposes of preaching the gospel to people, because this is not just about these people doing it, it's about what we learn and the implications for us. Um, so let me read this starting at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, "Why is this Babler, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Acabus. that is, it's the hill of Ares, was a Greek god of thunder and war, and is located in the west of the Acropolis and south of the Agora, and had once been the site of the meeting of the court or council of the Ariakobis. So this is just all pagan worship stuff. May we, know, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So it's a, it's a great audience because th- these, are, these are thinkers, learned people who, who want to hear the new ideas, who are philosophers. Um, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Agrapas and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So I like it because I feel like he's meeting them where they're at. Mm -hmm. He's, and I think that's so important in spreading the gospel. When it's, uh, I think when it's spread right, you don't start by attacking other people. You start by meeting them where you're at and then telling them about your God, For instance, like the the plagues, when when Moses would go to Pharaoh and they let my people go and there was a plague. All of those plagues coordinate with an Egyptian god. He was saying like, okay, my god's going to meet your god where they're at. My god's going to do something more miraculous than your god is going to do. But you meet the people where they're at, they're going to understand your message better. And you, it, it's just a great jumping off point. It doesn't mean you agree with them. I think that's where we get it wrong sometimes. We say like, yeah, it's okay that you worship that way. You know, this is what I do. And you're kind of meeting him there. But you need to tell them the truth in, in your gospel message too, as Paul's going to do. He's going to meet them there, but tell them then what, who the real God is. Uh, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not shrink that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of the men sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So met them where they're at and preached the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to skip the Paul's third missionary journey highlight. I had just picked his farewell to the Ephesians if you want to read that because I feel that really summed up who he was. And then I'm going to go to the end of the book. Um, Paul's imprisoned in in Rome. And again, if you look at your timeline, you're going to see that this is his second imprisonment and this is getting toward the end of his life. Um, he's under house arrest, um, and it says that he rented a house, uh, which means that he was paying for it, which means he had to earn a living to do that. And we know from scripture, um, in chapter 18, verse three, that Paul was a tent maker. So he could possibly still be doing that as he's, as he's traveling and preaching, still be making, making tents, um, uh, and in Philippians 1.12, we also hear that Paul says, um, I summarize it, but that all of this was happening to further the Gospels. So he understands that all the suffering he had to go through was to further the Gospels. So at the very end, um, let's see, I want to read, um, uh, let me start at uh, verse 23. Of the last chapter, chapter 28. So he's in Rome. And he's under Roman guard, but he's preaching. He's having people in his house. He's making a living. Um, It says, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers in the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke in the truth of your forefathers when he said through through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, 'You You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, understand with their hearts, and turn as I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there to his own rented house and well and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, it, he... Nobody didn't want this to be a message to the Jews, but their hearts were callous and this and he's saying he's gonna he's gonna keep preaching and it's gonna be to the Gentiles. Um, this is not the end of Paul. It's the end of Paul in Acts. obviously, during these times he writes letters. He was um, probably died um, also a martyr during these persecutions again for you know around sixty eight or something. But but a lot of tradition and I think evidence would say that he, after he got out of prison here in Rome he probably went on the fourth missionary journey um, because the evidence shows that um, Luke does not give an account of the trial before Caesar that we know he's going to have to face um, it could be because the prosecution would have two years to make its case he was probably in prison in Rome for about two years and they hadn't made a case yet that, that could be why. In Philippians, Paul implies he was soon to be released. Paul mentions several places he wants to preach the gospel, but we don't see that he's gotten to those yet. And early Christian literature talks about more travel. And since we don't see that that he's dying here, he's not put to death by any kind of trial. It is possible that there was a fourth missionary journey that's not unheard of. Um, But it's not necessary to further the gospel for us or for them. We see, we, we see what he's done. We have his letters that he's written. Um, and that leads me to, you know, I always say, like, the best part of Paul is not the book of Acts. It's, um, it's the things that he wrote. So you have a third handout, and it has a bunch of Bible verses on it. And... Thank you. Thank you. So I just picked, and when I taught this in small group Bible study, this is how we ended our study of Acts, and it was really impactful just reading these wonderful words of the Apostle Paul. So um, we're going to go around and do that. I'm going to finish up first because it won't get on the recording. You, if you don't want to read, you can just pass. But let's um, let's just close with prayer so I can turn off the recording and. Um, For all my listeners, if you want to pick up the pages, just contact me. Um, You know, I got those six people. You never know. They might want that. So let's just fold our hands in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us together again to study your word. It has been just a joy personally to me to study the word of Christ with other sisters in the faith. It is uplifting it, it helps me in my faith journey, and as we see what these early church fathers went through to spread your word, let it be an inspiration to us that we also need to go out into all the world through all the persecution and all of the bad things going on and still preach Christ crucified, the most important message. Be with all of us that are here, that are traveling, that, that are going through pain physically, mentally, emotionally, and let us be your instruments, your vessels to bring that healing word to those people in their lives. And we pray that you, you keep your loving arms wrapped around us all. In your name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.